right, it is 11 o'clock, so we're going to get things rolling here. We are in, I believe, our ninth week now, studying through Jude. I um, had great expectations for what we were going to accomplish today. I think we're going to get halfway through verse 12, so we'll see. Um, For those of you who have not been able to join me over the last several weeks, uh, I'm trying to go back over everything that we've covered to date on Jude, just so that way you're um, right where we left off last time. So um, I've been sharing every single week just my method for coming to the Word of God and understanding what it is that He has to say to us today from His Word Um, And I'm very indebted to Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes and their textbook that they wrote um, as an introduction to biblical interpretation for um, freshmen in college at a Christian liberal arts school called Grasping God's Word. And they've devised a very simple five-step approach to reading the scriptures and to understanding what it is supposed to mean for us today. So you'll see here on this little um, slide that I'm showing right now, we've got a picture On the far left, there's a little village that looks like a a biblical time town. And so that represents the first step in this process. We want to grasp the text in their town. We want to understand what is it that God was saying to his people at the time that this was written. Um, Because he is not going to tell us something that he didn't tell them, right, from, from the text. So we need to understand what it meant to them first to begin to understand what it should mean for us today. And then the second step that we have here, you've got a little river that's uh, running to the side of that village, and it says culture, language, time, situation. Um, This step they call measuring the width of the river. We're trying to understand what are the differences between the biblical audience and us today, right? There, There are certain things that are different, especially if we're reading an Old Testament text. There's a lot of culture Right, that we have to understand. There's uh, language, maybe going back and reading the text in its original language, so Hebrew for most of the Old Testament or Greek from the New Testament. Um, and then just the time in redemptive history, right? Where were they? Was this before Christ? Was it after the resurrection and Pentecost? So just understanding the differences between them and us. And then the third step, we've got a bridge that's crossing that river called the principalizing bridge. So now that we understand what the text meant to the original audience, we understand what are the differences between them and us, we're able to start pulling out a principle that transcends culture, language, place in redemptive history, context, right? And we're able to begin to understand what this text should be meaning to us today, which takes us to our fourth step here, right, which is consulting the biblical map. So now that we've begun to understand a principle from the scriptures, right, now we want to hold it up to the test of the rest of scripture because we believe that scripture interprets scripture. So it's totally possible to be looking at one passage of scripture and ignore all the rest of the Bible and come up with some really crazy stuff, right? People have done that throughout the history of the Bible. So we want to hold it up against the rest, right, of the testimony that we have in God's word. Okay, And in addition to that, after we've held it up against other scripture, perhaps we want to go and take a look at other sources throughout church history. How have people right, who have loved and worshipped our God and Jesus also made meaning of this text? Okay, If you are the first person in church history to come to a text and come to this particular meaning, well, it's time to go back to the drawing board. right? 
Um, it's unlikely that you're the first person to ever understand that text in that way. Which takes us to our last step in the process. We've got a town that looks rather like where we live, right? And so now that we understand what the text meant to the original audience, what are the differences between them and us, we've arrived at a principle that transcends time and context. We've held it up against the standards of other scriptures as well as church history. Now we can begin to apply that principle to our lives today. All right, so... We've been using that process, and we've just been asking a lot of questions to try to understand what did the text mean to the original audience, right? And so to begin to understand that, we have to know who was the author, right, and and what was some of the context. So um, the first week that we got together, we explored this question, and we arrived at the conclusion that the author of the letter of Jude was Jude, the brother of James, who was the bishop of in ancient Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have some understanding that he didn't necessarily receive Jesus as the Messiah during his earthly ministry. It wasn't until sometime after the resurrection, but before the day of Pentecost, that Jude seems to have been converted, right, to receiving Jesus as the Messiah. And from that time forward, he was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches um, in Galilee. So the next question that we wanted to ask was, who was Jude's intended audience? Because if we're going to understand the text in their town, we need to know where their town was. So we looked at a variety of possibilities, but concluded that Jude is writing to first-generation Jewish Christians who are living in Galilee. These are among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. In fact, he tells us in his letter that those to whom he has writing received the faith directly handed down from the apostles themselves. So our third question is, what is the genre of Jude, right? Because we've got a variety of different literary types that exist in the Bible. We need to understand those literary types to make meaning of them, okay? If we interpret all scripture in the same way, regardless of genre, again, we're going to come up with some really crazy understandings of scripture. So we have poetry, We have exalted prose, we have narrative, we have um, apocalyptic. So for Jude, we came to the recognition that this is a very unique Jewish apocalyptic style that was popular really just within that first century AD among Palestinian Jews sometime before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And Jude, what he's written to us is steeped both in Greek speech rhetoric, so we know that he studied things like logic and Greek philosophy, but also deeply steeped in Jewish midrash and pesher hermeneutics, right? So it's faithful to that Old Testament tradition, rabbinical tradition. So the next question that we asked is, when was Jude written? So we know who wrote it, we know who it was written for, but the the date's going to help us to, again, identify what is their talent so that we can understand. So we concluded that this was one of the very earliest books of the New Testament to be written and circulated. We've got it tied down somewhere between 48 and 58 AD. So for a little bit of context here, that is before even the Gospels were written down and circulated among the churches. This was well before Paul began writing his letters to be circulated amongst the churches as well. 
So the fifth question was, what was Jude's purpose? And he answers this question himself in our text, right? He indicates his longstanding intention to communicate with them, but this has been made even more urgent by a crisis that's arisen in the churches. And he's wishing to urge his audience to contend for the faith once for all handed down by the apostles. Right, so Jude begins his letter by explaining to us some of what's happened in these churches, right? Why he's urging them to contend. And he has some things to tell us about his opponents. First, he says that long ago they were destined for condemnation. Jude seems to believe that his opponents were subjects of prophetic condemnation um, in this uh, extra canonical biblical book of First Enoch. Okay, so he's making some references there throughout his letter, um, and we've talked about that. There's more for us to talk about um, a little bit later in the text in a few weeks. He describes them as ungodly people, right? And this term shows up in the Old Testament. It also shows up a lot in First Enoch, which he's relying upon heavily as a resource. It's always in contrast with the righteous. There's the righteous and there's the ungodly. And here Jude is emphasizing his opponent's antinomianism. That is to say that they want to cast off the rules and regulations and the laws, anything that Moses had handed down to them. He tells us that they're perverting grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And then lastly, he accuses them of denying Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. Jesus says in the Gospels, I did not come to end the law or destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But they want to set it aside entirely. So Jude begins to explain to us how in history, right, redemptive history, how has God responded to such things? And he provides us with three historic examples. The first example that he gives us is those who did not believe after the Exodus. And this is a reference to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Right? These folks had been led out of Egypt by the mighty arm of God through ten miraculous plagues. Right? They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They followed right, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And yet somehow they still did not believe in the power or the authority of God's command. And in doing so, they provoked God's wrath and judgment. He said, this generation, right? Um, and, and he left that entire generation to wander the wilderness until they died. The second example that he uh, gives to us is that of the fallen angels. And here he's referencing the events uh, kind of cryptic that exist in Genesis chapter 6, but are outlined in greater detail in First Enoch chapters 6 through 11. Right? So we have this account of these angels who rebelled against God by abandoning their place in the heavenly places and coming to earth and having sexual relations with the daughters of men. Um, so they've abandoned their creational purposes for themselves, and they're actually teaching and encouraging others to do the same. Enoch um, elaborates on this to say that these fallen angels actually taught fallen humanity um, how to sin 
uh, in more and more grievous ways against God, which provoked God's wrath and punishment. And then the third illustration that he gives to us, the third example, is that of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked God's wrath and punishment. So we see three examples of people right, who are abandoning what God is desiring for them to live according to their own desires and that this actually provoked God's wrath and punishment. So Jude brings several indictments against his opponents. First, he calls them dreamers, okay? And this is definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way. He's trying to insult them. His opponents uh, do seem to be citing some sort of special revelation that they're receiving through dreams. And they're considering this to be a source of final authority for doctrine and for ethics that contradict that of Scripture and the apostolic faith that they received. Second, he says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase, again, appears repeatedly in 1 Enoch. It describes the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this way, his opponents are like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom, and Jude expects God to handle them in a similar fashion. Third, The indictment that he brings is that they reject authority. His opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels, and that they're failing to acknowledge their role in the creation order. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teaching of Jesus to pursue their own plans. And then fourth, he indicts them that they blaspheme the glorious ones. So again, his opponents are claiming to receive divine revelations um, that explicitly contradict the divine revelation of the law and the gospel found in the scriptures and in the apostolic faith once handed down. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Christ himself. And this leads Jude to a cryptic reference about the archangel Michael. He says that he was contending with the devil over Moses' body and Um, supposedly this story, which it it doesn't exist in our canon of Scripture, um, but we're told by ancient sources that um, it was included in this pseudepigraphal book called The Assumption of Moses, which we don't have any complete manuscripts of that today. His main point here is to indicate that even the archangel didn't claim personal authority to bring judgment against the devil, but rather he said, the Lord rebuke you. And yet Jude's opponents are claiming that kind of authority for themselves. So Jude offers this final indictment in a rather poetic form, contrasting their blindness to the truth of God's word against the immersive and indeed animal-like knowledge that they have of all things carnal. And then he moves into some more examples for us. Right? So first he says that they walk in the way of Cain, which is a reference back to the uh, story in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was a rebel who did not believe that God's judgment would actually come. He challenged God's authority in order to live according to his own greed and his own lust, enticing others to join him in his sin. He gives us the example of Balaam and his error, right, which is accounted in Numbers 22 through 24, 
right? And then we have this really interesting piece of information that shows up in chapter 31 that talks about how Balaam, after he said that he would not place a curse over Israel and went home and his greed and his desire for the riches that were potentially going to be offered to him, turns around and heads back. And he tells Balak, right, well, I'm not going to curse Israel, but you could potentially tempt Israel. If you send your daughters into the camp of Israel, they could seduce the sons of Israel into abandoning their faith in God. Balaam was a prophet for money, enticing others to join him in sin for his own financial gain. And then third, he tells us about Korah's rebellion, which is referenced in Numbers chapter 16. Now, Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority, enticing others to join in his rebellion, bringing disaster upon the whole congregation. Now, Judah is referencing these stories as illustrations of the attitudes and behavior of his own opponents. His very... uh, He's really intentional here in moving, right? He goes from walking in the way of Cain to rushing into Balaam's error for gain to perishing, right? As this progression of their error and demonstration of judgment that awaits them, walking, rushing, perish. And with the final reference to Korah's rebellion, it is also his intent to demonstrate to his audience a model as established by Moses and Aaron for dealing with those who reject authority and rebel against God's law. So this example given to us from Moses and Aaron, the very first step is simply to teach everything that God has commanded in his word. Right? That's what we're instructed to do if we even go to Matthew 28, to the Great Commission. What is it that Jesus instructs all of us as his disciples to do? Right? To baptize, right? go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What? Teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded. Okay, So this is consistent from Old Testament into New Testament. We're responsible to teach the things that God has commanded. Second, right, we see with Moses and Aaron, they're warning those who are in error. So they've, they've communicated. People know what God expects of them. Now they're seeing people who are still living, right, in rebellion or contumacy, right, against what God has commanded. And so they offer a warning. But some are not going to repent, right? This is what we saw in the example of Korah's rebellion. Korah did not repent of his rebellion. And so Moses and Aaron told the whole congregation of Israel, judgment is coming. You need to make sure that you are far away from the tents of Korah, right? Because what happened in that story? Yeah, the the earth opens up and it swallows them whole. So he says, get away from from where they're camped. Separate from those who are persisting in this error. And then fourth, right, still Moses and Aaron are interceding on the behalf of the people, right? Those who have repented and those who remain in rebellion. And finally, they're leaving the work of judgment to God, right? Moses and Aaron didn't take this into their own hands. They waited for God to act. And in that particular story, as we already said, the earth opens up and swallows them whole, right? There's judgment that happens immediately. 
And that leads us to the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Jude writes, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so uh, we're just going to be looking at this first part of verse 12 together. So uh, first, <laughs> it's these people again. This, this word shows up over and over and over and over again in Jude. Hutoi, right? These people, right? Jude is continuing to pound away at his opponents in this letter, repeatedly using this word. So he uses it first in verse 8. Hutoi, these dreamers. And then in verse 10, Hutoi, these people. Whatever they cannot perceive, they blaspheme. The verse we're looking at today, Hutoi, these are the hidden reefs. Verse 16, Hutoi, these people are grumblers. Verse 19, these are divisive people. Now, this word, um, actually, so, yeah. The the next thing that I want to focus on here is uh, what's translated as love feasts. Right, so the Greek word here, it's underlined agapes, right? Which should be pretty familiar if you know a Greek word at all because you went to Sunday school as a kid. It's probably agape, right? Love, right? And, and the word um, in this form actually only appears once in the entire Greek New Testament, which is interesting. That's right here in Jude, right? Uh, so it's a noun. Um, it's the, the dative feminine plural, so it's translated as loves, right? Uh, there's nothing about it that's feast. It's just the common term we, we think um, that, was, that was being used. So it's something that Jude's um, audience would have understood. Um, however, this word is also used um, in a few extra biblical places. So, for instance, if we look at um, St. Ignatius of Antioch, in his uh, 110 AD letter to the church in Smyrna, he writes, It is not lawful without the bishop either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast, right, agapes. But whatsoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. Right, So St. Ignatius in, in his letter is actually advocating for churches coming under the authority of bishops. There are some churches who have not been doing this, and he's telling them to get with the program. He says if you're not under the authority of the bishop, you're doing your own autonomous thing, that's not ideal. Right, So don't, don't gather together. Don't celebrate communion. Don't, um, don't baptize. Right, 
and unless you're doing that under the authority of the bishop. So we've got a, another example here from Clement of Alexandria, who also uses this word in his letter from the second century AD. Um, it's called the Stramata, and here he writes these um, caprocates, uh, which is a cult in his contemporary Alexandria. These people and some other enthusiasts of similar evil say that when they come to dinners, now I would not call their meeting a love feast. So he's giving us some context here. So, so this word agape, love feast, right, is a is a dinner, and he's saying his. Uh, these people in Alexandria, this cult, call what they're doing a love feast, but he's not going to uh, allow that, right? Um, he would not call it a love feast anyway. He says that when they come together for this dinner, men and women together after they've filled themselves with food that arouses the senses, turn off the lights to the shame of their adultery, right? So at these dinners, apparently these folks in Alexandria are, are having some sort of an orgy, he says, of these and similar heresies, I think that Jude prophetically spoke in his letter. So gives us a little bit more context here. So it's commonly accepted that the love feast, right, agapes, is synonymous with the Eucharist, right? Um, though the setting of the sacrament in the early church was that of a communal meal. So it looks a little bit different than what we did when we gathered here today for worship. It was actually a, a dinner. All right, so the context, it's, it's happening at these love feasts. He, he's talking about these people, and he uses this interesting word, spilades, Okay, so spilades, it's a noun. Nobody's really entirely sure of its meaning. It actually doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. It's only here in Jude. Doesn't show up in the New Testament, doesn't show up in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We're, we're kind of at... A loss here. Now, a similar word uh, appears so uh, in, in Polybius' history. So this is a second century BC, so um, 200 plus years before Jude was writing. In the context of an account of sailors drowned at sea after their ships were dashed by the waves upon the Spilasi. Okay, and so from context, people have come to believe that these are maybe rocks that are hidden under the waters, perhaps reefs that boats can, can be um, driven into and cause them to crash. Um, Plutarch also in his Moralities, which is contemporary with Jude, first century AD, Plutarch writes of people destroyed by their vices, like a spilados, appearing in fair weather, and the soul is overwhelmed and confounded. So... Uh, Theoretically here, Plutarch's talking about some sort of a stumbling block. People are walking along the way, they hit the block, and they fall. It's assumed by many scholars, therefore, that spilades is the same word with the same meaning. And this is where we get that common translation, hidden reefs. 
And as a translation, this works. It certainly conveys a clear image of the danger that Jude's opponents posed to Christians in the church. Now, as Ben Witherington, whose commentary I've been relying on pretty heavily for this study, um, he writes in his commentary, Jude is warning his audience against the hidden dangers of getting too close to the false teachers, who are like sudden rocks and can cause spiritual shipwreck. They are all the more dangerous because they have been accepted into fellowship with believers. So one's defenses will be down to the danger in their midst. So Hidden Reef's perfectly fine interpretation and translation here, but there is a second possibility for how we might choose to translate and interpret Spilades. Okay, so interestingly, 2 Peter, which we've talked about in, in previous weeks, 2 Peter was written after Jude and appears to be using Jude very heavily as a primary source. He's expanding upon the concepts that we find in Jude. And Peter in his letter, uses a slightly different word when describing the opponent's presence. Peter writes of his opponents, he says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots, spiloi. Just one letter difference, right? Um, from, an, from an alpha to an omicron. And blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, the noun, spiloi, can be translated as a spot, a fault, a moral blemish. That word does appear elsewhere in the New Testament. So, as a noun, it appears in Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, spiloi, or wrinkle. It also shows up as a verb, later in Jude 23, which we're going to explore in greater detail. <clears throat> All right, so to say that the presence of Jude's opponents is a blemish upon the Eucharist also makes perfect sense, since this is exactly what Peter says in his letter. The fact that Jude later uses the same word strengthens the argument, I think, for translating this as stain, or blemish, rather than as a, a hidden reef. Either way, they're perfectly fine. We're not going to lose the meaning of Jude here, so it's not a hill I want to die on. But I, I tend to think it's more of a stain or a blemish. All right. So, hutoi esin oi entais agape sumon spilades sunyuksomenoi. Aphobos. Okay, so a couple of things that we want to talk about here. So first I want to talk about feasting <coughs> without fear. Aphobos. That's ah, or without, plus phobos, which if you know other Greek words, you probably know phobos. It's where we get phobia or fear. So Jude's opponents are present at the Eucharist. They're participating at the celebration, and they're doing so completely without fear. But they should be afraid, right? And this is Jude's point, especially given Jude's last reference to Korah's rebellion. It's clear that he expects God to open up the earth and literally swallow these people whole. If not in the moment, then certainly at the final day of judgment. 
Now, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, writes something equally foreboding about the Eucharist. Let's look at that together. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Now, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So in the church in Corinth, it seems that not everyone at the Eucharist was a genuine Christian. Those who are genuine among you, Right? So there are those who are genuine, there are those who are not. Now, the church was gathered in factions, and Paul condemns what is happening in Corinth and says that whatever it is, it isn't the Eucharist. He says, whatever you're doing, it's, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're doing, because some are getting drunk on the sacramental wine, leaving nothing for others to partake. And this is symptomatic of deeper spiritual issues that are at play in Corinth. Perhaps similar to those that Jude is condemning in his epistle. In any case, Paul is writing to warn the folks in Corinth to let them know their peril. Anyone who partakes in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this corroborates with Jude when he describes his opponents who are most certainly not partaking worthily as a blemish upon the feast. And this comes with judgment, either presently or at the final day of judgment, which is to come. In the case of the church in Corinth, 
that seem to be happening in real time. Right? Let me go back to that. Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. Pretty scary. So, though commonly translated as a separate concept, shepherds feeding themselves, that's the common translation of this next part, this is probably an extension of the previous thought that we just looked at. Now, the Greek here literally reads feeding themselves. It doesn't say anything about shepherds. Um, so they are a blemish on the love feast as they feed themselves to the exclusion of the others who are present. And that would be bad enough. That's exactly what Paul was condemning in Corinth. But what's worse is that Jude's opponents are not merely functioning as selfish congregants. Right. So what we've got here, utus uh, poimenantes. Right. So this this word, poimenantes. It's a present active participle. Right. So participles typically translated with an ing at the end. Right. Um, it's in the nominative, masculine, plural forms. So pretty pretty simple, straightforward. So we would translate it feeding, or tending, or perhaps shepherding. Okay, so there are other Greek words that could have been used here um, if he was just concerned about the fact that they're over-consuming the sacramental bread and wine. Now, this word, however, conveys the very specific connotation of shepherding, feeding sheep, okay? That Jude chose this word implies that his opponents are functioning or at least presenting themselves as pastors in the church. But pastors have a charge from the Lord Jesus to tend to his sheep as under-shepherds. And Jude's opponents are feeding themselves rather than the sheep. Now this calls to mind a, a passage from Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, this is an Old Testament prophetic right, book that we're looking at here. This is before Jesus. And God is condemning right, the priest and the teachers of Israel. So Ezekiel writes, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened. The sick you've not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to to search or seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, 
but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now, Jesus actually references this passage uh, from Ezekiel 34 in Luke 19 in the gospel. As he's on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in the town of Jericho and he meets this fellow named Zacchaeus, right? We all know the kid's story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see. Well, Zacchaeus was a Jew, right? He betrayed his people by uh, working for the Romans as a tax collector. Jesus is going through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the fast over and, and ultimately to die, right? To be crucified and to be risen to life again. And as he's passing through, there are teachers of the law. There are important people here, right, who expect a visit from Jesus. But who does Jesus decide to have a meal with? With Zacchaeus, this wicked man who is hated by everyone. And the teachers of the law are, are up in arms about it. How dare you go and have dinner with this guy? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? And what happens? Zacchaeus hears, right, these accusations brought against him, and he says, it's true. I have done all these things. But this beautiful thing happens in that story, right? The Holy Spirit's working in Zacchaeus's life because he repents. He says, everything that I've taken from my neighbors, I'm going to pay back at interest on top of that. Well, the teachers of the law still aren't very happy about what's happened here, um, <laughs> failing to recognize the miracle of repentance that just unfolded in front of their eyes. And Jesus quotes from Ezekiel 34 when he says that, um, that I've come, right, to feed the sheep. So Jesus, right, he's, there's a lot of things happening here, but he's identifying himself as the Lord, as Yahweh. He's coming to feed the sheep whom the shepherds of Israel have forsaken. He's simultaneously condemning the religious elite who are in the city of Jericho, right? Because they could have done this. They could have gone to him and they could have made him aware of his sin and called him to repentance, but they didn't. They just, they just ignored him. So Jude, the brother of Jesus, is talking about his opponents and he's comparing them to those shepherds of Israel who neglected to feed the sheep, who neglected to preach the gospel Right, and instead made themselves fat. So just like Cain, just like Balaam, they are greedy right, for what they can get, and they are not caring for God's people. All right, so uh, it is quarter till right now. If you have kids, feel free to go pick them up. We went a little bit long last week, so I wanted to have a bit of space here at the end of our time together today so that I could answer questions that may have risen from last week or from this week. So if anybody has questions, we can take those.
Okay. Maybe by design, I don't know. <laughs> um, I have up here, next week we're going to look at these waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, wandering stars. That's not quite accurate. Um, next week, my wife and I will be in the mountains celebrating our anniversary, so we'll get together in a couple weeks. <laughs> so, uh, this will be our second anniversary. Yeah. yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody.